You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, the Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, M.D., Seth, Ghost750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rumrunner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefei, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today, we're going to tie together a lot of the threads that we've introduced over the past several weeks. Thomas Howard, Thomas White, John Bowen, David Williams, and even Ert von Tool. They're all going to play a role in today's story, but first, I'd like to introduce yet another pirate into the mix. His name was John Pro. John Pro has been around for a while now. He just hasn't done anything that required an introduction until now. No one seems to know anything about his early life or even how he came to the Indian Ocean. Aside from the claim that he was Dutch, I've got nothing on the guy. It's possible that he arrived way back in 1696. When Thomas II and Henry Every and all those other ships headed for Madagascar, a lot of pirates came with them. And once they were done, not everyone wanted to go back home. But it's just as possible that John Pro showed up later on. His first documented piratical voyage took place aboard the Mocha frigate under Robert Culliford. 
I like to imagine John Pro as one of the pirates that was in that Indian prison with Robert Culliford and James Kelly. Sailing with Cutlass Culliford would have put John Pro at St. Mary's Island shortly after Adam Baldridge abandoned his trading post. He would have been there when Edward Welch took over the operation, dealing mainly not in human flesh, but in human flesh. Yeah, I did not like the way that sounded. Uh, let's try that again. He was not dealing in enslaved people, but he was running a brothel. And I can't say how much personal autonomy the women working there may actually have had, but it looks like it wasn't, you know, Edward Welch chaining up enslaved women and forcing them to work. He provided the space, the amenities, you know, food, drink, and he also provided security. For that service, he took a cut from the women that were working there, who apparently were there mostly of their own volition. Now, Edward Welch took over the operation at St. Mary's back in 1697, but by the point in our story, late 1702, everything had changed drastically. This is episode 333, A Most Ill-Natured Fellow. I hope I've made it clear over the past few weeks that Madagascar, at the beginning of the 18th century, was in a real state of uproar. There was fighting going on almost everywhere between all these different Malagasy kingdoms. In 1699, Thomas Collins returned to England with his son, Ratsimi Hollow, who was the heir to the Betsimi Soraka Confederation. The Betsimi Soraka was a powerful kingdom that controlled almost the whole northeast coast of Madagascar. Now, I can't say for certain that this event, Ratsimi Hollow leaving Madagascar, I can't say that it exactly set off this surge in warfare, but it does seem like there was a correlation here. Remember when Nathaniel North joined that war between those two tribes, allied himself with one of the warring factions? Well, that war was fought against a satellite of the Betsimi Soraka kingdom. It was one of the tertiary members of their confederation. Well, in 1701, Thomas Collins returned to Madagascar, and he immediately got involved in the war. The crux of the war seems to have been an alliance of tribes under a chief called Ramanano. He was building another confederation of small kingdoms that he called the Sokoa Confederation. And I don't know that he was trying to overthrow the queen of the Betsimi Soraka and Tavaratra Rahina, but it seems like he was trying to peel away parts of their territory to add to his own base of power. When Thomas Collins returned to Madagascar, he found the war going poorly for Queen Rahina, the mother of his son, she still held her home territory, but the Confederation was beginning to fall apart. Naturally, Tom Collins would have joined up on the side of the Betsimi Soraka, but there were other problems for the pirates in the region. This Sikoa alliance knew that the Betsimi Soraka had something of a, an understanding with all of these English pirates, so they attacked St. Mary's Island. In the raid, Edward Welch was injured. He was forced to leave his trading post and return to America. Now, it seems like one of the concerns that the Sikoa people had with the Betsimi Soraka and the English pirates 
was that Edward Welch was no longer trading in slaves. Which was, you know, a net good for humanity, but to the Sikoa people, it seemed like the Betsimi Raka had built an empire on raiding and slave trading, secured their base of power, and then said, okay, we're done with that now. They wanted to get back to this highly profitable business. The next person to take up the trading post at St. Mary's Island was none other than John Pro. It seems like he'd been living at St. Mary's for a while, maybe even kind of shadowing Edward Welch, and he thought it prudent to get into the business of trading enslaved people. Not only was the money pretty good, it would keep him from getting raided by the Sokoa people. He might have some trouble with the Betsimi Soraka or, you know, England, but if he played his cards right, he might just be able to walk that very thin line that kept him in business and alive. So we're going to leave John Perot at St. Mary's, and Tom Collins with the Betsimi Soraka in early to mid-1702. Right now, let's shift our eyes back to the speaker, back when it was still seaworthy, anyway, back when George Booth was still in command. Shortly after they captured the speaker, Booth needed more men to fill up the ranks, so he sailed down to St. Augustine Bay, where he picked some up. We talked about this back in episode 329. Now, you may remember a crew under a man named Evan Jones who captured the Beckford Galley, and then, when the pirates sailed to St. Augustine Bay to careen the Beckford Galley, they broke her back stranded themselves at St. Augustine. Luckily, just a few weeks later, George Booth showed up in the speaker to pick up Evan Jones and his quartermaster named David Williams. At that point in our story, Evan Jones mostly disappears from history, but David Williams is going to stick around. He was there when the speaker sailed for Zanzibar when the pirates were attacked, and then when they sailed for the Malabar coast over in India, and then on their return journey when the speaker wrecked at Mauritius. Evan Jones and David Williams were among the pirates who stayed with Captain John Bowen when he bought that brigantine at Mauritius and sailed back to Madagascar. They were still with him about a year later when Captain Bowen captured the speedy return. So, are you following so far? We're getting everybody into place. John Bowen and David Williams are on the speedy return. Thomas Howard was still at Mauritius. He stayed behind when John Bowen left. And then we've got John Pro at St. Mary's and Thomas Collins with the Betsimi Soraka. And that's almost everybody, but there are two pirates who we have yet to catch up with today. Nathaniel North and Thomas White. And man, there really are a lot of Thomases in this story, huh? We haven't even talked about Thomas Green yet, but we're gonna. He's important to this story. We'll get to him, though, when Scotland really starts to fall apart. As for Nathaniel North, don't worry about him. He doesn't play a role in this story. He's still living at his little pirate haven, presiding as, you know, Prince President North over his utopia. Thomas White, though, his story is interesting. At this point, he was no longer with John Bowen, and I can't exactly tell you why or how that happened. Or rather, I could give you two or three variations of the story of Captain Thomas White. However, 
they all contradict each other. So here's what I'm going to do. First, I'm going to tell you what the book says happened to Captain White in his own chapter, ignoring all the stuff said about him in other chapters. Then, I'm going to give you my version of the story. A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2, tells us that Thomas White was, quote, all this while afore the mast, being a forced man from the beginning, end quote. It's saying that he was forced into piracy, which he kind of was, but that at this point he's still serving against his will, you know, impressed into service. Now, I don't believe that at all, but that's what the book says. Then it tells us that Thomas White ran away, that he and a few of his comrades jumped ship. Eventually, they took shelter with a local king who treated the Englishmen like kings themselves. They had good food, beautiful women, soft beds, strong drinks. And then, according to the book, Thomas White and his fellows got picked up by another gang of pirates. It was the frigate Prosperous, commanded by Captain Thomas Howard. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. they done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When John Bowen left Mauritius and his brigantine, Thomas Howard stayed behind, simply because there wasn't enough room on the brigantine. Howard and his men stayed for a few months there at Mauritius and enjoyed the hospitality of Governor Roloff Diodati. But they had no intention of settling down. They were waiting for their chance, and eventually that chance sailed right into the harbor. Now, I don't know who this ship belonged to, but we should remember that the world was at war here in 1702. For a ship to sail boldly into a port owned by the Dutch East India Company, she would have to be an allied vessel. English, Dutch, maybe Portuguese. With that in mind, Governor Diodati would not have looked kindly on a plan to capture an allied ship. But this ship, the Prosperous, turned out to be a perfect 
pirate ship. She had 36 guns. She was clean and sleek, in really amazing shape, ready to sail exactly what Howard and his men needed. So maybe Governor Diodati didn't give his blessing at all. Maybe Thomas Howard just took it. You know, it might have been foolish to anger your host and deny yourself a friendly port, but Howard was, after all, a pirate. Asking permission wasn't exactly in his wheelhouse. The only record I have of how he took the Prosperous tells us that Howard took her in, quote, almost the same manner that Bowen and his gang seized the speedy return, end quote. If that's the case, that means Howard and his men took the ship quietly, without firing a shot or striking a stroke. If Thomas Howard and his pirates did indeed take the Prosperous without letting Diodati know, probably had to beat a hasty exit from Mauritius. They sailed west from Madagascar as fast as the Prosperous could sail, and their first stop was Fort Dauphin. He and his men met there with Abraham Samuel, who had some interesting news. Now, Abraham Samuel, man, what I wouldn't give to have a fly on the wall, writing down everything that was happening inside the walls of Fort Dauphin. He's up to something, but I don't know what. I have this suspicion he might be behind this civil war that's broken out on mainland Madagascar. We know that he had a fairly substantial interest in trading enslaved people, and in about ten years' time, he's going to be fighting with the Betsimisaraka people. But at the same time, he's trying to stay on good terms with the English pirates from St. Mary's, and later on, he's going to try to ingratiate himself with the French over at Reunion Island. He's kind of playing this two- or three-sided double-agent game, and I, I can't say that he's behind everything that's happening, but he's definitely pulling some of the strings. When Thomas Howard arrived there at Fort Dauphin, he told them that there had been some drama over at the plantation owned by none other than Ert von Tool. And you remember Ert von Tool, right? He's that Dutch smuggler, pirate, merchant type that sailed with John Hoare back in the 1690s. Eventually, though, he built a plantation on Madagascar. He married a Malagasy woman and had a mess of kids. And he'd always been a reliable source for fenced goods. You know, he would buy almost anything that the pirates had, anything that he could resell anyway. But he'd never exactly been friendly to the pirates. Which, you know, if we're being honest here, that was the smart move. You know, dealing with pirates can certainly be profitable, but you don't really want them hanging around. Best to keep them at arm's length. However... Here in the latter months of 1702 to 1703, something seems to have changed. And remember that we're dealing with 300-year-old rumors here that were filtered through a mostly fictitious account, so we don't exactly know what happened, but some pirate crew at some point was attacked by Ert von Tool. He had a, something of a private militia at his compound, and apparently, when a pirate crew visited his plantation, Ventoul killed a few of them. Some of the others he captured, and others managed to escape. Now, I'm not sure this actually happened. You know, Abraham Samuel could have been just 
making this up to try and rile the pirates up toward whatever end he wanted from them. But whether it happened or not doesn't really matter because the pirates believed it did. So we'll operate off the assumption that there is some basis in fact behind that. But that leaves the question, who was it that Von Tool and his men attacked near Christmas 1702? And there are a few different possibilities. If you were to go look it up on Wikipedia, it would tell you that Ert von Tool attacked Thomas Mosten. Now, you'll remember Captain Thomas Mosten as that pirate, merchant, interloper, smuggler type who was involved in the conspiracy with Adam Baldridge and Benjamin Fletcher. He's the one that brought Robert Allison to St. Mary's to conduct some business with Baldridge, and then... When the uprising happened, he's the guy that took Baldridge back to New York. When they arrived, Thomas Moston was arrested. His ship was seized by Governor Bellamont, and that's the last we saw of him here on the show. That was 1698. Here in 1703, as we said, Wikipedia has him back at St. Mary's, but I'm pretty sure that's not the case. As far as I can tell, Thomas Moston was still in New England. Maybe still at the old stone jail, but probably not. Aside from a bit of run-of-the-mill, tax-dodging, smuggling stuff, it seems like Mostyn mostly went legit. And mostly stayed in America. Here's where the confusion comes in, I think. You know, I've got like four different versions of A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2. I've got a scan of the second edition which is, I'm pretty sure, the oldest surviving copy we have. That one, though, is kind of tough to read. The script is very old-fashioned, and it's faded in a bunch of places. Then I've got a copy of the restored text, and mostly that's what I've been using for the show. There's also the Pirate's Own Book, and the Pirate's Own Book is not a direct reprint, but certain chapters, like that of Thomas White, are pulled directly from Volume 2 of A General History. And then I've got a copy from Project Gutenberg. And I want to be clear here, I'm not trying to throw shade at Wikipedia or Project Gutenberg. These are amazing resources, the wonders of the digital age. You should support them in any way you can. But in the Project Gutenberg version, there are some discrepancies with the other restored text. Namely, in a passage that that uh, Wikipedia article cites as its source. The Project Gutenberg copy of A General History, Volume 2, reads, quote, They sailed to St. Mary's, where Captain Mosin's ship lay at anchor between the island and the main. This gentleman and his whole ship's company had been cut off at the instigation of Ort Van Tyle, a Dutchman of New York. End quote. And it seems that, in this instance, Mosin was interpreted as Mosten. And that's fair enough, I guess. And to be even more fair, in that original second edition scan, that passage is one of those that's pretty hard to read. It's faded, and it does look like it says Mosin. But in the other restored version, and the pirate's own book, they say that it was Captain Misson's ship that lay at anchor. You know, James Misson of Libertalia. 
And I think that is what the text is trying to relay to us. And I'm fairly certain that Thomas Moston was half a world away. Which leaves us with the question, well then whose ship was it? If Moston wasn't there, and Misson wasn't real, who was it? First of all, I think we should acknowledge that it might actually be someone named Captain Moson. There are quite a few just random pirate ships hanging around the region here in the early 1700s. None of those are very large, usually just a sloop with eight or maybe ten guns. And none of them would go on to do anything of any real note or make much impact on the record. And that kind of thing was going on all the time, everywhere, all throughout the Age of Sail. We haven't had much cause to talk about the West Indies for quite a while now, but there were still pirates doing pirate stuff there, and when we do go back to the West Indies and leave the Red Sea behind, there are still going to be pirates doing pirate things at Madagascar. Right now, there are pirates active in Boston, Newfoundland, Ireland, basically anywhere that has a harbor, there's some pirates there. So it could have just been some random captain named Mosin, or someone else whose name we don't even know. But then there's another version. A version that, admittedly, I kind of just made up. But it is my favorite version. Imagine that. I'd like you to picture this. At some point, while sailing with Captain John Bowen, Maybe while they were back at the Malabar coast, Thomas White came into possession of a sloop. Thomas White sailed in concert with John Bowen and the speaker for a while, but on their return journey, imagine a storm that separated the speaker and Captain White. That storm would pretty clearly explain why the speaker crashed into the reef there at Mauritius, it would also explain how Thomas White became separated from the speaker. And it would also, probably, damage Captain White's sloop. He would have to take refuge at the nearest port, which could very possibly have been the harbor of Ert von Thule. And instead of helping Captain White and the other pirates, von Thule attacked them. He takes their money, he takes their cargo, he captures some of the men, he kills others, and only a few of them manage to escape. And when they do, they sail for St. Mary's. Now, again, I don't have any evidence to support this. There's no mention of anything like that happening in the text, but Thomas White's story is difficult. There's a bunch of loose threads that don't seem to connect, that don't interact with other elements in its own story. And this version, very simple little story, helps me kind of square the circle. It's probably not what happened, but if I don't come up with something like that, I would just have to say, you know, somehow Palpatine returned. Because somehow Thomas White and his men make it to St. Mary's. And when Thomas Howard arrives... Thomas White is there, as well as a sloop that may or may not have actually belonged to Thomas White. Maybe it was James Masson's, or Captain Moson, or Thomas Moston. Whoever it actually belonged to, Thomas White took command of it. Which means that here at the beginning of 1703, we've got Thomas White in a fairly well-armed sloop, 
and Thomas Howard in The Prosperous at St. Mary's. And John Crow had a message there for the pirates. He told them that they had all been invited to the christening of Ert von Tool's eldest boy. Apparently, von Tool intended to throw a real party, and he wanted all that were able to attend to do so. But of course the pirates knew that Ert von Tool had attacked and killed somebody. Maybe it was Thomas White, maybe it was somebody else, maybe it didn't even really happen, but that's what they knew to be the truth. So this invitation sounded a bit like bait. They were being lured into a trap. Now I gotta tell you, what I wouldn't give for an Alexander Exquimelin right about now, or even a Basil Ringrose, you know, both those guys really knew how to dramatize an attack, especially on land. They could really put you in the pirate's sandals. But we're stuck with writers who are happy to spend pages detailing the judicial system of a pirate base, or maybe discussing at length the ethics of the state holding power over an individual. But if you want a good action scene, you really gotta dig. And no matter how hard you dig here, you're never gonna find gold. I'll do with it what I can, though. The two ships sailed south toward Ert von Tool's plantation, but when the Prosperous veered toward the plantation harbor, Captain White continued on south. Only the Prosperous docked there at the harbor, and when they arrived, they were welcomed by van Tool with open arms. As the company were settling down to dinner, a watchword was given. The pirates all produced pistols that they had hidden about their person and fired on Van Tool's guards. Ert Van Tool himself they took prisoner, and then they began to plunder his home. And Van Tool had quite the collection of riches stashed away. Rugs from Persia, spices from India, coffee from Mocha, tea from China, and of course, silver and gold. The pirates took everything they could carry, everything of worth anyway, and loaded it up into a pinnace for transport to the Prosperous. They also captured everyone. Van Tool had a loyal group of men, all of them Dutch, that formed the kind of inner guard of that militia we mentioned, and those men were all chained up and imprisoned. The pirates then set all of the enslaved men, the laborers there at the plantation, they set them free. The enslaved women were also freed, but they didn't leave quite yet. The pirates hadn't seen women in quite some time. We can hope that those ladies were so grateful to the pirates for setting them free that they offered up their charms freely, but it may have been less cordial than that. Van Tool's wife, though, was unharmed. She was captured, and then she and her kids were rounded up and put in a longboat with Van Tool himself. They were rowed out into the center of the river where two men in the longboat stood guard. And then, the pirates that were ransacking the house began to bring all of their worldly possessions, everything that the pirates had not taken, they hauled to the riverbank. And the Van Tool family had to sit there and watch while all of it was dumped into the water. Clothes, tools, toys, food, 
anything that wasn't nailed down was dumped. Now, the pirates probably planned to kill Von Tool, but I'm not sure that was the case. Why bother making him watch you do this if he's not going to have to live with the consequences? Regardless, though, Von Tool managed to pull off an escape. Really, his wife did it. She undid the binds around her hands, and then clandestinely untied the ropes tying her maid's hands. And together, they pushed those two pirates that were in the boat overboard. Then they grabbed the oars and rowed away. The pirates prepared to go look for him, but before they could really get a search underway, Ventoul returned, with about two dozen men, most of them Malagasy, and all of them armed. They had muskets and pistols, and they knew how to use them. From the other side of the river, they opened up fire on the pirates. One bullet hit Captain Howard through the arm. The pirates at the riverbank scattered, and then Ert von Tool set up something of a redoubt on the far bank, digging in. It was a long, tense night there at the plantation, but as dawn broke, everybody knew that a fight was coming, and the pirates, despite their poor showing earlier, they had the numbers. They were going to destroy Van Tool and his little militia. But then, a horn sounded from the forest, and a powerful force of Malagasy warriors, armed with bows and spears, not guns, but you know, traditional weaponry, they emerged from the tree line. This was enough to worry the pirates, but that wasn't all. The horn had been a signal to advance because, at the mouth of the harbor, a Dutch ship was rounding the bend. It was a well-armed brigantine under full sail that belonged to Ert von Tool. The book calls it the Dutchman. Now, the Prosperous would have been able to put up a good fight here, but all of her men were currently ashore. It would take some time to get them aboard, and that time might spell their doom. So the pirates jumped in their boats and made for the Prosperous as fast as they were able. They were rowing hard, struggling to make it to their ship in time, but it was clear that the Dutchmen had the advantage. This might just be it for the pirates, but then... Out of nowhere, a volley of gunfire. You know, large guns, cannon shot from the mouth of the harbor. The men looked up. Was it the Dutchman firing at them? But no, it was Captain Thomas White, arriving just in time and opening up his guns on the Dutchman. And that was what the men of Prosperous needed. The Dutchman's attention was all focused on the sloop, so the men of Prosperous were able to get underway and make for the exit. When they neared the fight that was going on between the Dutchman and the sloop, the Dutchman had to take evasive maneuvers or else he would be caught in a crossfire. This gave Captain Howard the opening he needed. Thomas Howard and Thomas White escaped, mostly unscathed, aside from a few wounds like that Thomas Howard had, and they had an amazing haul of extremely valuable treasure. It was a successful raid, but Ert von Tool, a killer of pirates, still lived. Next time, Thomas Howard, 
Thomas White and John Bowen are going to join forces to rectify that. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible, so thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Grey History, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.